door of hope. Thanks, Chelsea, for those great words. Today's scripture reading is from Luke 18, 9 through 14. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The word of God. Yeah, that's good. Thanks, boss. Good morning, everybody. Goodness, after following Chelsea, I probably don't even have anything else to say. We can just be dismissed and go home. I'll save this for next week. Oh, good morning, everybody. My name is Ian. Anybody who doesn't recognize me, I uh, am one of the one of the preachers here. Um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna ask a, a favor of you. I haven't. I don't know what it is. Some of you know this about me, but I, I've dealt with insomnia my whole life, and I just went through a bangerang in the last 48 hours. I haven't hardly slept for no reason, no reason, just not, just not sleeping at night. And so this is all like, whoa, bro, <laughs> where am I right now? We're gonna, we're gonna get down to, to the word of God. So just say a prayer because we need to hear from Jesus today, and I'm, I don't even know hardly where I'm at. My shoes are tied. That's a good start. So the, we're continuing our study in the parables, um, and this one, I really like this one. Um, as I was studying this parable and, and reading a bunch of different takes on it, I was reminded of one of the first lessons that, that, was, that was taught me whenever I started leaning towards becoming a, a preacher, uh, was somebody said to me that, your number one job is to find out what it is in a text that is the main point. Whatever the text is, whether you're preaching on three verses or 30, what is the main point, and you need to drive that home. And I must confess, that's honestly been really difficult for me in the Bible, because the, the Bible is so connected, and you're reading in Genesis, and there's connections to Revelation, and you're reading in Romans, and there's connections to to. Deuteronomy, and it's just like there's this, everything is connected, and so it's hard to, to sometimes like stay on one linear idea. It's something that I, that I struggle with. Uh, it's hard to know what the main point is sometimes. And as I was reading this parable, there were some guys that came in, and they, they, they took this text, and they said, this is, a, this is about humility and pride. That's what, that's what this is about. This is about having humility and not being prideful and the dangers that lie in pride. I and mean, after all, it's the last thing that Jesus says in verse 14. He says, he who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And some say that it's more about religious observance. You have a Pharisee, you have a tax collector, and the Pharisee's got his list of things that he doesn't do and that he does do. And then there's the immoral tax collector. And so there's a, there's a there's a lesson in here about religious observance, about what to do and what not to do, how to act and how not to act. And some people come in here and they say, this is, this is actually about how to treat people. The Pharisee's not a really nice guy. And he's, he's wagging his finger at that tax collector. And I'm not, I'm not like that bozo over there. And it's easy to get lost in all the details. And, I, and I, those details are there. I think that they, they, 
aid the story. They give, they give, they give uh, aid to what the point actually is. But I believe that what the point of this parable actually is, Jesus uses one word, and it just lands like a, a stone in your gut. He uses the word justified. And that's what this parable is actually about. It's about justification. In verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. This is a parable about justification. And we, so we need, to, we need to start there, and that's going to take us all the way through this parable. What is this justification? That's what this is. And as I thought about this over the week and I prayed about it, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to go back to the very, the very basics. There may be people that haven't heard this before. For others of you, what I'm about to say will be review, but we can never hear the Bible enough. So I don't feel bad about that. What is justification? What is this word that Jesus uses? This guy left justified. Well, if he, if he left justified, that means that he came not justified. Both of these men come to the temple not Justified, and one of them leaves justified. So what, what is that? What is it to be not justified? What is it, what is it to be justified? What does that actually mean? What is, what's in that word? What does that word represent? What does it stand for? And what's the transition that happened in between? The guy came not justified. He left justified. So what is this? We need to understand this word. Justification basically is a, is a legal term. It means to be right or to be just, to be guiltless, to be innocent. To be just in the sense that Jesus is using it here means to be without guilt, to be without fault. This guy left justified. Another way of saying this, this word justif justified is you could use the word salvation or eternal life. This man left with eternal life. This man left saved. And so that may not help some of us. Well, what does eternal life mean? What does salvation mean? Jesus gives us a very clear definition of what eternal life is in John chapter 17. And since we're dealing with the issue of justification and of salvation and of eternal life, what's represented here is this, this important, most important idea, reality of justification and these two different approaches to justification personified in each of these characters, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus presents these two characters and says, here's two approaches to the problem of justification. Here's two ways that you can go about it. And here they are. It's basically two different religions, two different faiths, two different objects of trust. What am I going to rely on for justification? How am I going to get justified if I'm not? And these two characters represent two approaches or two faith approaches to this justification. But this definition of, of eternal life that Jesus gave in John 17, the last night of his earthly ministry, he's with his disciples. It's really just moments before he's led away in handcuffs. And he's praying to the Father in the presence of his disciples. And he says, Father, this is, he says, this is eternal life. That they, the disciples who are present with him, and any believer, anybody today, for all the rest of human history, that they would know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is presented in that moment. It's not so much a place. Heaven is not described at so much as a, as a place. It is that, but more so it's a relationship. It's to know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And the word know in the Bible is not uh, just a, a, 
information, it's intimacy. I, I know things about people because I can read Wikipedia or I can read, read an autobiography, but I don't know that person. There's a difference between the way that I know some ancient, you know, like Martin Luther. I know about him because I've read about him, but that's very different from the way that I know my wife. I spend every day with her. And that's the kind of know that Jesus is, is referring to here. Actually, the word know in the Bible is often used to refer to sexual intimacy. It's the most intimate of intimacies. This is eternal life, to know God, to be in relationship with him. And, and there's a, a million things that you could say about that. And I, I want to I I be clear here, and I want to be descriptive, but I don't want to take too much time. But I think that it would help us to, to, to understand this knowing who God is, not knowing about him, not reading our Bibles and downloading some information, but actually having a personal living relationship with him actively now today in this very moment. To understand some of that, it helps to understand who God is as, 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 as far as relationship is concerned because the Bible actually teaches us that God himself is a relationship, which is mysterious and it's beautiful, but as far as we can apprehend it, we can never fully comprehend it, but as far as we can apprehend it, what we do understand is that the Bible teaches us that God is one God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And yet we have these mysterious passages in Scripture, the, the creation narrative in Genesis. God is speaking, and he says, let us create man and woman in our own image. And it's like, well, what's with the, what's with the plural there? And the, the Bible, I'll save you a lot of reading, and the Bible teaches us that God is one and that he exists in three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And some people come to the doctrine, this is what we call the doctrine of the Trinity, and some people kind of balk at that. And they're like, ah, doctrine, who cares? It's not important. God's one, he's three. What does it matter? Well, here, it matters greatly, and I'll just give a couple of reasons why it matters. And it's really good news why it matters. God is a God of love. And if God is, is one person, if he's one being, then that love can only be narcissistic and self-centered. It can only be a megalomaniac kind of love. But because there's three distinct persons existing for all of eternity that create, that, 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 are, the, that are one Godhead, simultaneously one in three, what, uh, some of the language that you'll hear this, I, I think this is helpful to think of it this way, God is one in essence and he's three in person, or some say he's three in economy. Every person has a different role, but they're not each other. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. They are all unique. They are all individual persons, but they are all God. They are all full deity. And because these three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, have been existing for all of eternity before there was ever any creation at all, it means that the ultimate truth behind everything is a relationship of love. What is the, if you're here this morning and you're an atheist or you're an agnostic or you just don't even know, maybe you came here for the free coffee and to use the restroom, that happens. Welcome. This is what, this is, this is what we believe. What is the ultimate reality behind everything? What is, what is the thing that holds everything together? A relationship of love. A communal, familial, intimate family. A relationship that has been 
that has been actively engaged with one another, an others-oriented others love. This is, what is the, this is the reality behind all other realities. What created the cosmos? A relationship of love. What holds everything together, the earth in its orbit and the sun and all the planets and the stars and the oceans and butterflies and caterpillars and everything, newborn babies, all of this stuff, a relationship of love is, is sustaining this. His name is Yahweh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, existing for all eternity, three in one. The greatest reality of the cosmos is a love relationship. And so once, you, once we understand this in the Bible, then this concept of, of knowing God, of this, of this justification, this eternal life with God, knowing God, to have eternal life is to know him, it starts to really take on a sense of, of passion, of heart. There's a love relationship that governs the universe created all things, holds all things together. What were you created from? Why are you here? You were created from this love relationship. What were you created for? Why are you here? You were created for this love relationship. Yahweh did not create out of a necessity or out of a deficit or out of some sort of insecurity or depression. He created because for all eternity there's been this abounding circular love one for the other, and, they, and, and we were created to be a part of that. We were created to be in a relationship. Eternal life is to know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent because that's what, we, that's what life is, is to be in that relationship. That's what we're for. That's what we're from, to honor God, to be in relationship with him, to be in intimate communion with him. But anybody who's in any, any kind of relationship at all knows that relationships have standards. And the greater and the more intimate the relationship, the higher the standard is. Nick, my friend Nick Mariakis, friend of mine. It's none of his business what I do with my money. He doesn't ask. I would tell him if he did, because I'm not hiding anything. But my wife, you best believe. I called my, I got Burger King one time and I called my wife and I was like, <laughs> she's not with, about the fast food thing. And I called her, I was like, babe, I actually, I'm sorry. I got this, I got a, I got a burger. It was $14. I got the large fry. I'm not going to call Nick and tell him that. He doesn't care. I call and tell my wife everything. I'm not going to be home for another 20 minutes. I said I'd be home at noon. It's going to be more to 1230. Why? Because the standard is higher. The expectation is greater. And the more and more that you have to sacrifice, marriage and, and, and parenting, and all of these relationships are great gifts of God, but with every one of them comes a level of sacrifice, of selflessness, giving, giving up freedoms for the sake of the relationship, for the consideration of the other. And this relationship that we were made for, we sinned against in the garden. We violated the relationship. We, we, we committed mutiny. We sinned, and God is perfect. This is part of this idea of justification. Yahweh in heaven is perfect. He's more perfect, he is more righteous, he is more just than we can possibly imagine, and his standard is that. That's his standard. And we have to start there. We sinned against that standard. We violated the covenant, and he cannot dwell with sin, and Adam and Eve literally got kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And what happened there was a, a spiritual death, that relationship that, 
somehow this fusion that is beyond our comprehension, human beings, created beings, and God were fused together in this relationship, and that fusion was, was disconnected. And just like a rose being cut from the vine, it loses its nutrients, it loses its root system, it loses the vine that gave all of its source of life to it. You cut it off, that rose will be pretty for a couple of days, but inevitably the petals will fall, it will wilt, it will die. And our death is a physical manifestation of the spiritual death that is the reality of being separated from this relationship with God. It's a sad state of affairs, it's bad news. It's not good news at all. This isn't fun. There's a lot of pastors and preachers that don't talk about this stuff because they want people in the pews. And people oftentimes, especially in cultures today, do not want to hear about sin and about wrath and about being banished out of God's presence. But this is what the Bible says. I, <laughs> if you got beef with it, that's fine, but you're going to have to go here. You can come to me if you want, but I'm going to go right here. That's what the Bible teaches. And this is, why, this, is, this is why these men come to the temple not justified. We're, we're indwelt with sin. And the Bible has a lot to say about this. All over the, the New Testament, we, re, we read things like this. This is uh, Psalm 51.5. And you know, I, I, would, I would say, guys, write, I'm going to go through a couple of verses right now. Write them down. Take this home. Think about this. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, think about this. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, think about this. Write these verses down. Meditate on this. Pray about this. Talk about this in your community groups. Psalms 51.5 says, I was brought forth in iniquity. This is David writing. I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. Our very nature now is one of a, sin, is a sinful nature. We inherit, we inherit it. I've got blue eyes I inherited from my mama. I didn't ask for them. It just happened. We inherit sin. It just becomes a part of us. This is fallen humanity. We, by our very nature, are sinful. Psalms 53, verses 1 and following, David writes this, God looks down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who is, has insight, anyone who seeks after God. But every one of them has turned their back. Together they have become worthless. There is no one who does good, no, not one. Psalms 143 verse 2 says there is no one living that is righteous or you could say there is no one living that is just it's a terrifying reality this is, this is bad news there's, there's really great news the gospel is great news and it's such good news because the bad news is such bad news we cannot skirt away from God's justice we cannot skirt away from sin because then the sacrifice of Jesus the love of Jesus the mercy of Jesus isn't really all that great his sacrifice wasn't really all that important unless, unless we understand really just how bad the bad news is it's bad news Romans 3.23 Paul writes all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He goes on to write in Romans 6, 23, that the reward or the wages, the payment for that sin is death. Spiritual death, alienation, separation from God that will be a spiritual reality for all of eternity. Apart from a sacrifice. And it manifests here and now with death and decay and with atrophy and with depression and, and heartache and all of the things that humans do to one another that are awful. We see it around us all the time. It's all a manifestation of the spiritual death eking its way into the physical world. The wages of sin is death. Romans 
1.18. It says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The Bible says in Hebrews that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God because he is just, he is a judge. And he is perfect. And this is our problem. This is about standing before God. I've heard people ask the question before when they're doing evangelism. It's not really my style, but it's a, it's a really good question. And the question that they ask is this. If you were to die today and stand before Almighty God and he said to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would your answer be? That's what this parable is about. What would your answer be? Here's two guys with two different answers. Two guys with two different faiths. Two guys with two different hopes. Two guys with two different, what they think is a bedrock foundation. One of them was right, and one of them was wrong. It's two guys with two different religions. Our problem is that Father God is morally perfect. He's perfect. He's perfect. He's beautiful. He is perfect. And his standard is that we be that as well, and we're not. All of us have sinned. And fallen short. Every single human being born from Adam and Eve on has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And he demands perfection. Leviticus 11.44, the Father says, Be holy, for I am holy. Jesus picks up the exact same language in the New Testament. In Matthew 5.48, he says, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How, how do we do this? Well, there were people that thought, this is how I'm going to do it, right there. I'll just earn it. I'll discipline myself. I'll be good enough. I'll do all the right things. I won't do all of the wrong things, whatever those things might be. I'll behave. I'll earn salvation. That's my hope. That's my expectation. That's my goal. That's my faith is that I can do it. And that brings us to our parable. The very first thing that's said in verse 9 is, he, Jesus, told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, or you could say that they were just. I'm confident that I'm okay before God because I act right, which just takes God's standard and brings it so low. We compare each other, we, we compare ourselves to one another, and it doesn't look so bad a lot of the time. And we often compare ourselves to the worst of the worst, right? We, you always hear, oh, well, I'm not Hitler. We always hear people say that. Well, I'm not Hitler. I'm not Mao. I'm not Jeffrey Dahmer. It's like that's really the, that's the standard that you, you're not that guy. Do you think that that's where God's standard is? Well, Ian, never mind the blaspheme, never mind the hypocrisy, the lying, the manipulation, the greed, the idolatry. You never killed 10,000 people or 10 million people. His standard is way, way greater than ours. And here are some people who think that they can do it on, on their own. And it says that they treated others with contempt. They, they, had, they trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and they viewed others with contempt. And this is the problem with the religion of prohibition or the religion of discipline, is that if you have some measure of success, because there are some people. I mean, this Pharisee is a good example of someone who, like, looks good on the surface. And we'll get to that in more detail in a minute, but there are people that, from the outside, I grew up with kids like this who were just so stinking well-behaved and it made me mad. I like wanted them. I was like, just smoke the cigarette. Just do it. Just, just, it would make me feel better. Misery loves company. Do it. They wouldn't do it. 
And when, if, you ha- if, you're, if you're one of those people, it's very easy to treat others with contempt because it's easy to approach other people and be like, what's wrong with you? I'm doing it. I didn't have a handout. I didn't have a leg up. I'm, and I, what's your excuse? What's wrong with you? Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Quit your sniveling. Keep a stiff upper lip. Do right. Act better. It's easy to mock. It's easy to disdain. It's easy to dislike people. It's a very easy trap to fall into. Or if you're like me, and this is true, you look at God's law and it's like, I have no no measure of success at all. I cannot do this. Then I just, then I just hated God and his law. It was, a, it was a, an unbearable yoke. I cannot do this. I can't even get close. So leave me alone. I don't want your law. All it does is remind me of how high I can't jump. It reminds me of what I cannot attain. It reminds me of how good I'm not. I don't want it. I don't want to deal with it. And Martin Luther had this very same feeling, this very same sentiment about law. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a quote from him, and I'm purposely cutting the quote in half. So if somebody here knows this quote, I'm not, I'm not cutting him short. We're just going to get back to the other half of this quote later. But Martin Luther says, is, is quoted as saying this. He said, the expression, the righteousness of God, was like a thunderbolt in my heart, and I hated Paul with all of my heart. Paul is the one who wrote a large portion of the New Testament And he just talks about the righteousness of God over and over and over and over. He's the one that wrote, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He is the one that wrote that the wages of that sin is death. And Luther hated Paul because Paul talks about the righteousness of God. Paul says, I, or Luther says, I hated Paul with all my heart, period, to be continued. Are you here this morning and you kind of feel that way? I have, I have felt that way. I've been angry at the law of God. I've been hurt by the law of God because it was something that I just could not attain. And this, this tension here is, is good. This, this, we should be paying attention to this because Jesus brings into this story two guys who have two different faiths, and one of them was wrong. It's the guy who thought that he could do it on his own. He's probably speaking to Pharisees when he's saying this, people who trusted in themselves, and he brings in a Pharisee. He says, a Pharisee comes in and stood and was praying these things to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers and unjust and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Some say that this, uh, him, him praying to himself is, is actually an indication that he wasn't even really praying to God, that he was just sort of there bragging. And we see that in Scripture. We see, we, we read the very words of Jesus warning the people, saying, do not be like the hypocrites who pray just to be seen and who give tithes and offerings just to be seen, who fast just to be seen so that they'll be praised by men. It is possible that in Jesus' story, he intended for this Pharisee to just be bragging aloud. I'm not like this guy over here. And whether that's true or not isn't really the point, but he is, he is bragging. Even if it's a, a legitimate prayer, he's just bragging. He's just telling God of all the cool things that he's done. No need for mercy, no need for forgiveness, no need for propitiation, no need for any of the old Levitical law or the old Levitical sacrifices. He doesn't need any of that. He's beyond it. He's above it. He has earned his way out of that process. The Pharisees were experts in the Old Testament law, experts in in the Torah, the, the law and the commandments that were given to Moses and to the Israelites. And this guy thinks that he's above all of it in Jesus' in story. 
He says, I fast twice a week and I give tithes and offerings. This is intentionally over, over the top. I did a lot of reading on this, and, I've, and, I, and I found there's one, there's one place where fasting is actually commanded in the Old Testament. There's one day of the year. It's in Leviticus chapter 16. There's one day a year where fasting was commanded, and, and, the, and, and Jesus puts in this guy's mouth, not only do I fast the one day a year, I actually fast twice a week. That's how good I am. That's how astute I am. And he says he gives tithes and offerings of all that he gets. Jesus points out in Luke chapter 11 that the Pharisees even tithed herbs. Chapter 11, verse 42. Mint and cumin. So astute to the law, to every little point of the letter were they diligent to, that if there was somebody who could be saved by works, it would be guys like this. If it could be done, these guys would have been the most likely candidate to be able to achieve that. They looked good on the surface. Jesus even says in Matthew 5, chapter, verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's like, what? what's that? There's no way. Your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees? How is that even possible? And that's actually a question that these guys ask in this very chapter, Luke 18, right after this parable, there's the story of the rich young ruler. Rich young ruler comes up, and he is, he is top of the scheme. He is upper crust society. He's rich, he's young, he's the ruler most likely of a synagogue, and he comes to Jesus with this attitude of what, he asks the question, what do I need to be, what do I need to be saved? But then he continues to be like, well, I've, I've, I've done everything. I've done that, I've done that. Yes, no, I'm good, perfect. So we're, we're okay, right? And Jesus says, sell everything and give it to the poor and come follow me. He got the guy in the one place that he was unwilling to bend, and that rich young ruler went away unjustified. Jesus looked at him. It says, Jesus looked at him and loved him, but the, but the young man went away. And turning to, to the people who were there, Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. This guy looked good. He had the resume. He had the accolades. He had the, uh, the awards pinned on his chest. He was a ruler of a synagogue. You can't get any better than that. And these guys ask in, in Luke 18, verse 26, who, then who can be saved? If not this guy, who? How? Jesus' answer is very sobering. He says, these things that are impossible with people are possible with God. And there it is. It's impossible. This, this Pharisee in Jesus' story is, is working at an impossible task to achieve the perfection that is, that is God's standard. To think that we can do that in and of ourselves is a fool's errand. It's the height of pride. And it's the problem that the Pharisee in this story has. I can do it. I don't need Jesus. I don't need sacrifice. I don't need propitiation. I don't need punishment. I don't think it's fair to say that any Pharisee would have looked you in the white of your eyes and told you that they are perfect, but they would have told you that they've earned the right to be forgiven of the few faults that they do have. And there's a tax collector. Tax collectors were, were Jewish men who were working with their Roman oppressors to tax their fellow Jewish citizens. At the time and place, it didn't really get much lower than that. Rome was, Rome was over the Jewish people and had 
was, was taxing them unfairly. Inflated, inflated taxes, and there was actual Jew, members of Jewish society who were with the Romans to go get that money. They were getting rich off of it. Jesus says tax collector, and there were people that were listening to this parable that went, mm, those guys. I hate those guys. But here's a tax collector. Standing, standing far off, standing at some distance, he was unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but he was beating his chest and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This tax collector is in stark contrast to this upstanding Pharisee. He won't even come in close to the temple. He stands at a, at a, at a distance. He won't even lift his eyes. His posture and his position tell you that he has this sense of alienation. He has this sense of unworthiness. He knows that he's not doing very well. He knows that he's in trouble. He's even beating his chest. And it's been noted in history that that detail that Jesus threw in there, it, it, it would have been shameful because dignified men didn't beat their chest. They wouldn't have behaved in such an unhinged way. They would have been more austere. They would have been more shoulders back, chest up, chin up. They don't, you don't bow your head and beat your chest. It's similar to the story of the prodigal son where the, the father runs when he sees the son in the distance. Dignified men did not run. I went running with Greg McAvoy yesterday, and I'm telling you, today, dignified men run. But back in that time and culture, it was not something that, you, that people did, not something that men did. You don't beat your chest. Keep it together, man. But this guy comes in. He has no bragging, no accolades. He's just crying for help. He's beating his chest. He won't even look up. And he identifies himself as the sinner. Unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, beating his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I, do, I love that. He doesn't compare himself to other people the way that the, the Pharisee did. I'm not like these people. I'm not like those people. The tax collector comes in, and he doesn't say, I'm not as bad as the other tax collectors. You know, at least I'm here. I'm in the temple. I, I mean, that's got to be something, right? He doesn't offer anything. He just cries out for help. He repents what he's doing. He recognizes the alienation. He recognizes his sin. He recognizes the distance that is between him and God, and he cries out and says, have mercy on me. No flexing. No resume. Have mercy. And this is the good news. This is the good news. Right then and there, Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and who humbles himself will be exalted. That's it. <laughs> well, what about his sin? What about punishment? Is all of this just ignored? Is all of this just looked over? Do we just forget about it? And the answer is an, ex <laughs> an emphatic no. No, we don't just forget about it. His sin is not just done away with and swept underneath the rug. Jesus did not ignore sin. He did something about it. The Father did not ignore sin. He did something about it. And this is the good news. As great as the righteousness of God is, so great is his mercy. And you know, it's actually the foot that he steps forward with first. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. In kindness. He is just, and we cannot meddle with that. 
And I am fearful of quote-unquote preachers who stand behind one of these and try to act like God's not just, try to act like sin's not a big deal. You take away sin, you eviscerate the need for the cross. Judgment is, is coming. And Jesus stepped in. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son so that whosoever would believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That is, will be justified. Will be made righteous before God. One of my, the favorite, my favorite details, and it's easy, it's, it's common sense, but it's easy to miss. And I've said this before, but Jesus did not just show up on planet earth at 33 years of age and go immediately to the cross and die. He did not do that. He, he did not come, God in the flesh, as a newborn baby and grow in wisdom and stature and in favor of men and then just ascend back to the right hand of the Father. He didn't do that either. He came, he was born, he lived, and he died. He lived for our righteousness. That, that perfect law, that standard, that be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, I can't do that, we can't do that. Jesus did it. He did it perfectly. That punishment that I deserve for my sins, for giving God the finger and saying, I'm gonna do what I want, I don't care what you have to say, that mutiny, that, that hatred, the punishment that I deserve for that, Jesus took it on the cross. It's an amazing truth, it's beautiful, it's heartbreaking, but it's uplifting. It shows how great his love is. It shows how much he is not willing to skirt around his own righteousness. Sin had to be punished. It's not something that just deserves some cursory, quick glance. It is a real thing that we need to be very serious about. But God also didn't just light a match and go, forget him, I'm done. He sent his son, his one and only son to take the brunt. I mean, what kind of love is that? And Jesus knew it. Jesus knew it his entire ministry. He knew what he was doing. He wasn't bamboozled. He was a willing and an informed volunteer in this scandalous work of grace. That's a quote from somebody. I can't remember who. Or I do. I'm just not going to tell. <laughs> it's a scandalous work of grace. And Jesus did it. The Bible says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And the invitation is for whosoever. And this Pharisee, you know, sort of the bad guy of the parable but he's not exempt Pharisees are not exempt if you're here this morning and you kind of identify with the Pharisee you are not exempt God does not stiff arm you because you've got the wrong attitude he prayed for the very people that nailed him to the cross and the very people that cried out for his blood were told in Acts 2 that 3,000 of them were saved in one day 3,000 of the people that were like Oh, Jesus is being crucified? I'll sign off on that. 3,000 of them were saved. Maybe some of them were the ones that cried out, let his blood be on our heads and on the heads of our children. Maybe some of those people were the ones who said, you saved, you saved others, why don't you come down from the cross and save yourself? The people that mocked him, the people that jeered at him. That's how great his grace is. We cannot out God's grace. He's not desperate to save us, but he loves it. He doesn't, remember, he's not insufficient. He doesn't need it like we need things. He's, he's wholly sufficient, but he loves it. 
He loves to save us. And the Bible tells us so. Write, some, write these down. There's, these are some beautiful verses. Psalms 51, 17. This is, this is what the tax collector character in the, in the parable had. Psalms 51, 17 says that a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. The tax collector knew that he was a sinner. He knew that he needed grace. He knew that he needed forgiveness. And he was willing to admit it. And he asked for it. And it was wholly available to him. Instantly. He went away justified. He showed up to the temple unjustified. And in that moment, he became justified. Because Jesus' mercy is that great. And his blood is that effective. His sacrifice is that comprehensive. Romans 2.4 says that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Micah 7.19, he will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That's infinite. East and west never touch. One of my favorite Bible verses, Jesus says this in Luke chapter 12, verse 32. He says, fear not, little flock. I love this. He says, it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. As hard as it was, as ugly as the cross is, as brutal and violent as that event was, it produced something beautiful. The Father's good, it's the Father's good pleasure. Jesus says, Jesus says in Luke 19 that he came to seek and to save the lost. That's what he came to do. He knew that it was going to require the cross, and he did it willingly. For God so loved the world, he did something, and he sent his son. We cannot skirt around the justice of God. We cannot do it. But because of his mercy, because of the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, we will not experience that justice. We experience what is wildly unfair, and that is mercy and grace. And just like the guy in the story, for you today, repent, believe the gospel, instantly justified. Because Jesus' perfect life is given to you. His perfect legal record, that standard that is God's, Jesus did that, and it's given to you. And Colossians 1 says that because of that, we are holy and blameless and above reproach. That is quite the list only three points, but can, you can think about that for the rest of your life. Holy and blameless and above reproach. Thank you, Jesus. Give your life to him. While there is breath in your lungs, there is time. John 17, 11, again, the high priestly prayer is Jesus is praying for his disciples and for us, believers in the future. He, he says, keep them in your name the name that you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. And that is beautiful, that, that, Trinit that Trinitarian reality of the Godhead. Three distinct persons in a loving communal relationship for all of eternity that make up one God. Jesus prays to the Father that the believers would be a part of that oneness. That's how... That's eternal life. That's justification. And Jesus did that for us. The rest of that Luther quote goes like this. He said, I hated Paul. God's righteousness was 
it was a, it was a spear in my heart. The, the, rest of the, the rest of the quote, he says, only when I read the words, the just shall live by faith, then did I find relief. When I learned that the righteousness of God is his mercy and that he makes us righteous through it, only then was there a remedy offered for my affliction. That's what God's mercy did. This is what Jesus did. Sin is serious. And apart from Jesus Christ, there is nothing but death and punishment. That's it. But God in his mercy and in his love sent his son. It's often, it's often called either, at the very least, it's called stupid and closed-minded that Jesus could really only be, could really be the only way to salvation. But that's a, that's, a, that's that Pharisee attitude. Who are we to say that? In God's mercy, he made a way. His name is Jesus. He is alive today. He is God in the flesh, came to seek and to save the lost. And if you are here this morning and you are lost, repent of your sins and believe the gospel and you shall be saved. That's what the Bible says. If you're here this morning and you are a Christian, praise God. Be molded by him more and more and more and go out into this world, go out into Portland and tell people all about Jesus. He's rad, amen? Amen, bow your heads with me. Jesus, thank you for yourself. Thank you for your patience. Thank you that you are slow to anger, that you are are abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and that you came here to earth as a human being and you revealed that to us with your, with your very presence, with your very existence. The eternal Son of God took on human flesh and lived among sinners. You experienced everything that our world can dish out, but you did it without sin and you offered that perfection to us. Thank you, Jesus. I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit you might melt melt hearts this morning in that reality, that you might bring that truth close to the hearts of these people and that they would melt, that the radiant glory and heat of that truth would melt them, and that people would be melted to confession, to repentance, to cries for mercy, knowing that you are a good God who loves them, and that lives would be changed, and that salvation would be in this house this morning. Thank you for everything that you give us, Lord. Forgive us, for, <laughs> forgive us our debts. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us, Lord. May we be a, a, a more Jesus-like people conformed more and more into the image of Christ. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Hey, friends. This is Russ Lacey, one of the pastors here at Door of Hope Southeast. Thanks for listening to this teaching. We always want to encourage you to give to your local church and would never want to supplant that. But if you're a regular listener and would like to help our church as we seek to point people to Jesus and minister here in the city of Portland, we'd welcome your prayers and financial support. Just head over to dooroftheofhopepdx.org and click Give from the menu bar. May God bless you.